Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, June the 15th, 2020. This is episode 2681 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm going to challenge a lot of people today. I don't know how much it will actually challenge this audience, but I think that this show might be one that gets distributed. There's going to be a live YouTube video of about 10 minutes of this show that will go out on Facebook. That will get widely distributed, and it will really challenge people. Today's show title is called The Problem is the Solution If You Correctly Identify the Problem or Correctly Define the Problem. This is a well-known permaculture principle, and I want to say straight up, we're not really talking about permaculture today. The way that you would expect that we would talk about permaculture if you are a permaculturist, uh, we're, we, I will refer to gardens and crops a little bit today, but that will be fully as an analogy. It really is permaculture because as I've tried to say for so long and so many times and sometimes feeling like it's fall, fell on deaf ears, permaculture is not about growing plants. That is just a piece of permaculture. Permaculture was not developed, as is, is so often incorrectly stated, as a combination of the words permanent and agriculture. While it began its roots primarily as a, as a plant-based, let's grow food movement, that was because Bill Mollison and David Holgram took a look at the situation and realized the number one thing you needed to do to support humanity was be able to feed it. Once you fed it, you could solve all the other problems. Okay, But the word actually means permanent culture. And it's a system of scientific, principle-based, ethically-based design. Which means we can use it to solve really big problems. And like I said, some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today is really hot-button, challenging issues. But it's only challenging if we refuse to describe the problem. Here are the five problems that I'm going to apply this to today, and the first one will be the biggest triggering one for the most people. And it's also going to be the one I'm going to put on Facebook. The concept of white privilege, how we can feed the world, how we can provide health insurance to all, wealth inequality, and solving the failing school system. We're going to put these to the test about the problem being the solution, but the necessity of accurately defining the problem, if the problem indeed is to be the solution. And you'll see why I am going to try to change things today a little bit from the problem is the solution to the problem defines the solutions. Can we really improve upon the work of Holgram and Mollison and Lawton? Maybe. Maybe in this one instance. We will see. I will be judged accordingly, I'm sure, by the time we get to the end of this one. Before we get into this, Let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. I'll tell you a solution to a lot of our ailments is looking into the world of herbs and herbology. The problem is that that world is full of snake oil salesmen. So when I found Western Botanicals and they wanted to be part of the work that we're doing, I guess it's almost 10 years ago now, I was really excited. They've been a great partner. They've been with us a decade. If you need something herbal, if you think you might need something herbal, if you want to learn how to make your own herbal preparations or just buy things that are already prepared for you, 
All of that, you find it at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Free State Project is a great sponsor for today's show because they took a proactive uh, approach to finding a solution to the problem of there's not enough liberty in America. And that was, let's go to a place that's easiest to change, and let's start dragging it, if we have to, kicking and screaming toward the world of liberty. If you want to know more about how you can be part of that project, learn more about it, or maybe even emulate some of what they're doing in your own backyard, uh, check out fsp.org forward slash join and learn more about the Free State Project today. With that, let's get into this. Um, of course, I have a quote of the day, and many of you already know what that quote would be, even if you have not checked out the show notes or anything like that. Obviously, if I'm talking about the problem being the solution, the person I'm going to quote is Bill Mollison, and it's a quote that I've had on the show many, many times. And that is, though the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions remain embarrassingly simple. And I think that's going to take on a whole new realm for you today. I really do. Like, everything about that will become more obvious than it already was, especially if we change the problem is the solution into the problem defines the solutions. Real big emphasis on the S there. So I'm not going to dig much more into that one today. Um, I'm going to let it speak for itself because it's a good enough quote to speak for itself, and it should set the tone right. So I, I want to start out with the fact that if we're actually going to use this principle, uh, whether we use the original one as stated, which is the problem is the solution, which was a great way to say it because it was so memorable, That's one of those things that if you don't even know a lot about permaculture, but you've heard me talk about it, it's probably one of those things if I say the problem is, you say the solution. Like it just sticks with you. But if we move to the problem defines the solutions, we start to get a much more holistic view of what that really means. But if we're going to do this, we have to break the conditioning of society, which is 100% predicated upon dichotomy. So there's two things that we must do for this principle to work, no matter how we state it. The first one is we have to understand this does not mean the problem is not, in fact, a problem. Okay? If we have an actual problem, and we, may have, and we have many of them, we, we need to address it. So when we look at a problem, we may find that not only is it solutions, it's problems. The, the world has been set up for division. The world has been set up for dichotomy. So it's very important to the people that control things, the media, the power elite, etc. The hand that actually moves the chess pieces on the chessboard. And boy, we're going to talk more about that here in just a second. It's very important that the problem appear to be a zero-one problem, right? It's an on-off problem. The problem is blank. The problem can't be the problems are, because then it's way too complex to control you with and to bifurcate you into two camps of dichotomy with because only by division do you get control. Unity is the enemy of those who seek control. You, you, you've been led to believe that like this side really wants everybody on its side. No, because as soon as that happens and everything doesn't get super and better and swell, well, then everybody's like, hey, what the hell? You said that if you guys had complete control of everything and we did everything your way, all our problems would go away and our problems are still here, so what the hell? Right? So as long as the dichotomy exists, both sides can keep advancing the agenda. Right? So we, we can't pretend when somebody, like the first issue I'm going to talk about today is going to be white privilege. We can't pretend there's not a problem if indeed we want the problems to define the solutions. We just have to go to point two. 
For the principle to work, the problem or problems must be precisely defined in a very accurate manner. If we fail to accurately define the problem, we will end up with a saying of many computer programs, uh, programmers, garbage in, garbage out. So I see a lot of things that happen in the world, and people are like, how do people get such a twisted view? And I'm like, what, well, what did you expect? Since we inaccurately define the problem, we've created a corrupt component to the matrix, literally. And that means that the solutions will be corrupt solutions. And I don't necessarily mean corrupt as in um, corrupt the way we think of it like criminal politician. I mean corrupt as in ineffectual, they'll make no sense, they'll create further division, they'll actually make the problem worse. So if we inaccurately define a problem, we will then make the problem worse. So how does this apply to this I think it's kind of gutsy of me to take this one on with this as a lead off white privilege. When it comes to the, the concept of, of what we call white privilege, uh, I believe what we, we're looking at is how do, how do we get to the point where the problem is the solution or how, does the, how do problems define the solution? So I'm going to start out with something that a lot of you won't expect from me. There is a problem. There is a big problem. Now, I don't think that white privilege itself is the problem, and if, this, if that triggers you, just give me a chance here, because I really want to come at this from a perspective, uh, looking at this from the way a permaculture designer would, trying to come up with a solution by starting with the problem. And I believe if we do not accurately define the problem, whatever solution we come up with will be inherently corrupt. Inherently corrupt. And when I say corrupt, I don't mean necessarily, again, that it's something that is nefarious, but it will corrupt the way lines of computer code are. They won't fix the problem or they will make the problem more. So let's just start out with, let's get a non-emotional way to see this. So let's say that we have a garden or a, a group of crops and we are having a pest problem. And these pests are coming and they're eating holes in our leaves of our crops and the crops are dying and we're not going to get the yield that we expect. Maybe we're not going to get any yield at all. So we define the problem as we have a pest problem. And that's how we define the problem. So what's the solution? Kill the pests. So we go get a poison that's poison enough to kill the pests, but not poison enough to kill people. Maybe not good for them, but eh, if you eat it, you won't die. And we spray the pests. And lo and behold, the pests die. And we get a crop that year, but it's still not a great crop. And we're now feeding people food that has toxins in the food. Because we define the problem as a pest problem. There's too many pests here. Okay. Then, next year, when we spray the same poison that worked last year, what happens? All of a sudden, there were some pests who were hardy enough to survive the poison... And then they come back another time around, and they have babies. And those babies are also resistant to that toxin. And now we have super pests. So we say, I know, we'll use more poison, and that doesn't work because they're highly resistant. Now, we've been doing this a while, but we've still defined the problem as a pest problem. So then we say, I know, we'll use a second poison. We use two poisons, and we knock the pests back. And now we've eradicated all the predator insects, all the bees, all the other things that we need. And now we're paying somebody to bring boxes of bees in to pollinate our crop because we killed all the wild and native pollinators. And now we're paying for that. And now the bees are dying 
Because we all we started out from the very beginning defining the problem as we have a pest problem. Do you see how ridiculous that is? And with no emotional attachment to the to the thing, right? That's not something people get really emotional about. So we're able to clearly see that by starting out defining the problem improperly, we came to the wrong solution. How does that relate to something like crazy like white privilege? Give it a minute. Give it a minute. But if we actually define the actual problem, we have an imbalance in nature that's causing this particular insect that's always been with us to overconsume and damage our crops. That's the problem. Okay, so now what's the solution? Find the reason. Find the reason. And we might find that the, the soil's very nutrient deficient and the plants are weak, and that's why the pests are unduly attacking them. We might find that we've planted too much of one thing in one place, and then that is a solution in and of itself. We might find that this pest has a particular predator, but we've eradicated the habitat. See, all of a sudden we start to realize it's not a problem, it's a series of problems. But once we go down that path, instead of defining the problem inaccurately, this thing, this pest exists. Well, this thing has existed since the beginning of the earth. This thing probably existed before humans walked on two feet. Okay? When we were still primates in the trees, this insect existed, and now all of a sudden in 2020 or 1990 or whenever, it's a problem. Well, this, this doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? So when we define the problem, the solutions just start pouring out. So let's go to... Yeah, I know. I'm not supposed to have an opinion about this because I'm a white guy. Well, I'm going to tell you that a lot of what I'm going to say, if it bothers you, if a black person would say, it would bother you too. Because when people say you can't have an opinion if you're white on this issue, what they're really saying is you can't have an opinion unless your opinion matches exactly what I want it to say. So my, my issue here is there is a problem. There is a systemic racism problem in America. It is not as big as some would have it be, but it's certainly not as small as many believe it to be. And if you don't believe that there is a systemic difference in the way that black people and white people and other people of color, and I'm not really a huge fan of that term, but it's the right one here, um, are treated, then you're just not paying attention. And what you're doing is you're responding to the narrative that it's all your fault instead of trying to define the problem. Because I want you to think about the concept of privilege being the problem. Let's talk about a group of people that actually have a privilege. See, a privilege is something that exists above the mean, above the normal, above what everybody else has. And, and in this case, when we're saying it's a problem, for no good reason. So if Bill has more than Tom because Bill worked his ass off, that's not privilege. That's something that's earned. But here's a group of people that have true privilege, politicians. And I bet no matter who you are, you're not really fond of politicians, even the ones that are supposedly on your side. Okay, that's a different problem altogether. We won't get today. But what I mean by that is so Congress will pass laws and say this law applies to everybody in America, but not us. They will give themselves exceptions to the laws that they pass. That is privilege as a problem. So what's the solution to that? If we, could, if we had a magic wand and we could go poof, and fix the problem. How would we fix it? We would remove their privilege. We might pass a constitutional amendment that says something like, Congress so, shall pass no law that applies to the American people that does not apply equally to Congress. Now, whether it would work or not, I don't know, but it would be the right direction. We've now defined the problem. So if white privilege is a problem, how do we fix it? Well, we remove it. We take away the privilege. We say that people should not be elevated in this way, and therefore they should not be 
treated this way, and therefore let's drag everybody down to a common denominator, and G will get a solution. And this is why I've, and I know some of you are resistant to that being what it means. It may not even be what you mean when you say it, but if you say it long enough, it's the result you're going to get. And that's why I saw just today a person on Twitter making the case for the unequal number of infant mortalities between whites and, and black babies. And that basically the solution was that, well, if just if, if whites lost as many uh, babies at childbirth that black people do, everything would be equitable. And my buddy Vin Armani, who, by the way, is, is at least partially uh, black. I'm not sure what the ratios are, because like, I don't care. He's just a cool dude. And uh, he said, this woman is sick. And I could tell it actually surprised him. It doesn't surprise me. If you believe that white people having a privilege is the problem, what else would you come to a conclusion to over time, especially when it's repeated over and over and over and over and over until it becomes a catchphrase? And catchphrases are dangerous because they have no thought behind them. They're just designed to elicit an emotional reaction. That's all they're supposed to do, and they're very good at it. And they allow you to shut down the mind and stop thinking. So if we define the problem that way, clearly the solution we get doesn't work. And it's not good for anybody. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is racism and unequal treatment. So now what's the solution? What's the solution now? The solution is anywhere we can find it happening, correct it. And instead of saying that someone is privileged to be treated a certain way. See, that's like the minimum. That's the minimum ethical, ethical and moral way to treat another person. That's the minimum threat, because I don't think anybody's treated as well as they should be, especially by the state, right? But okay, here's the, like, this is the best we do. Okay, that's our minimum standard now. And everything should be directed to elevating everybody in our society, no matter what color they are, no matter what sex they are, no matter what sex they think they are. I don't care. They should all be treated at that as a minimum threshold of moral and ethical treatment. And as soon as we define the problem, that solution becomes immediately evident. Immediately evident. And, and this is how you know. This is how you know. If we let go of the attachment to the term, negative or positive, and we present that to a large group of people across multiple incomes, across multiple races, across multiple genders, we should treat all people at a minimum to this level of respect, decency, and dignity in dealing with them you get massive, instant consensus. And you should be asking yourself, and you should, like now if your mind's working, you should already know the answer, then why doesn't our government, why doesn't our media, and why don't the people who claim to want to solve these problems go there? Because if you solve the problem, you don't have anything to use to control people with anymore. So it's very important that we accurately define problems. But I, I think it's important to realize the only way that we get to the place I just described is, again, we have to go back to not saying that the, there is no problem. We have to actually accept that there is a problem. Almost any time that a, a significant group of people are saying there's a problem, there's a problem. The, the, the failure in the general is in failing to, find the, to define the problem accurately. It's also that what happens is are, are people that want to control you, 
will immediately seize upon this opportunity. And once they see this opportunity of a dissatisfied group of people, they will be happy to define the problem for them. And they will almost inevitably define the problem as being caused by everybody else. And as soon as they do that, they begin to control. So let's have our little discussion about the real elite chess game today. How the elite, the media, the politicians, the corporatocracy, the oligarchy, how they actually play chess. When we think of this, we think of chess in the conventional sense. You've got two guys trying to beat each other. And you got your knights, and they can move a certain way. Your bishops can move a certain way. Your pawns can move a certain way. They each have certain abilities, and they can all take out other pieces depending on how the game is set up. You notice that there isn't like the pawn can take the most powerful piece in the right situation. You know, as long as the, as long as the move is right. Okay, now I want you to think of a much larger chessboard, and I want you to think of the people playing the game no longer as adversaries. They're no longer adversaries. Their goal is not to win the game against each other. The goal is now that by the end of today's game, the pieces will be in certain places lined up in certain ways. They actually want to just, the goal, they, they have an agreed upon way they want the board to look. Now to make their life a little bit harder, unlike a typical game of chess where all of the pieces start out in the same place at the same time every time, We now have a much larger chessboard. We have a certain amount of pieces that are always starting in the same place at the same time with clearly defined rules. But occasionally, a knight, a king, a bishop, a pawn of one side or the other of the game, one color or the other of the chess pieces, will just materialize on a given hex. That could be something like, all of a sudden, look, there's riots. That doesn't necessarily mean they were caused. They, there they are. There they are. Now, in this game of chess, I want you to think about it a little bit differently as well. Imagine that if there was a knight and a bishop could take that knight, the bishop had to take the knight. It could not take the knight. You know, if you play chess, you have a piece that's set out there and it's an easy piece to take, you better immediately start looking three moves ahead because there's a reason your opponent put that piece out there. It's called a sacrifice. And you have to determine whether you really want to take it or not. You'll often find that maybe there's two pieces you could take. Hmm. Now imagine that the rules were, that once that opportunity came up, there was a move that had to be made. And again, pieces simply materialize at different times and different places on the board, and both players are working to the same goal. This is how you're controlled with these problems. First, you inaccurately define the problem. That way you create a central division as close to equal as possible. And then you use all the groups that think they're all working against. This is why you all should read the Illuminatus Trilogy by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. All these groups that think they're fighting each other are actually achieving the same goals for the people that are really in power. They're diametrically opposed. They're not like secretly behind the scenes working with each other, but secretly behind the scenes they're being used for the same goal. And how hard would it be if all the players in the game were in agreement of what they were actually trying to accomplish? Because what happens, you think people aren't that easy to move. No, a person is not that easy to manipulate. But people are very easy to manipulate. Once they're in a mob, once they're in a mass, they're going to respond to something a certain way. So once you have this group of people over here with this certain bent, if you stimulate that group of people, what they're going to do is already known. It's just like, I know if I put this knight here that that bishop's going to take it. 
And that's the game that they're playing. It all comes from failing to define the problem accurately. So here's another one. How about how do we feed the world? We need to feed the world. The problem is we need to feed the world. Well, that that would tell you that like some of the problems are there's not enough food to feed the world right now. Or there's not going to be enough food to feed the people of the world right now. It also would be that the problem is it is up to us, whoever the hell us is in this we, to feed everybody everywhere at the same time. And if we don't do that, we're failing to feed the world. Well, none of that's the problem. The problem that we have is many, many groups of people in the world cannot feed themselves today. What happens as soon as you define the problem that way? What is your solution? If this group of people in this country cannot feed themselves, what is your solution? Give them ways by which they can feed themselves. And understand that since they live in a different place with a different climate, with a different culture, with different people, with different dietary requirements and different dietary desires, that if you try to make the solution in this place look like the solution in that place, when that place is like a giant area with deep arable soils, and you grow corn there, that it probably won't work. That we'll need to figure out how do we feed these people in their biome, and how do we how do we actually, instead of how do we feed them, because again, that is, that is taking on something to ourselves that we don't need to be doing. What can we do to help these people learn to feed themselves? And a, and a slew of solutions come out. There's been countless projects all over the world, some of the most inhospitable climates there are, where systems have been developed that produce some level of food sovereignty for the individuals in question. And then we start saying, well, how, how far can we take that? Do we take that just to a country feeding itself, or do we start taking it down to a city, a town, a county, a state feeding itself, a region, a group, a family? As soon as we do that, this, in the words of Bill Mollison, the solutions become embarrassingly simple. Let's move on. What about health insurance? We need health insurance for everybody. Is the lack of health insurance the problem? If everybody had health insurance, would the problems go away? They'd like you to believe that. Either we need more affordable health insurance because the Republicans win and we can compete across state lines, which actually I have no problem with that as a tactic, but I don't think that if all of a sudden I could buy health insurance from a company in Florida versus Texas, that all my problems with health insurance would vanish and go away. I also do not believe for a second that if we went with the Bernie Sanders solution, which is the government will just be a single payer, that all of my problems and all of our problems as a nation and as a world with health care would go away. So what are the problems with health care? One, it's too expensive. Regardless of whether insurance pays for it, or individuals pay for it, or corporations pay, no matter who pays for it, the cost of health care has gone up astronomically. So that so the first problem is, what, how do we make the cost of health care lower? Not the health care cost to the individual lower, because that just means somebody else is paying the bill. How do we make the cost of care lower? Cost of care is too high, but then the, the, the counter question, how do we make the cost lower? And all of a sudden, you can probably start, I'm not even going to give them. There's hundreds of ways to do that. The next problem is, why are so many people sick compared to just 50 years ago? We have an explosion. It's also related to the first problem of why it's so expensive, but we have an explosion in type 2 diabetes. We have an explosion in cancer. 
We have an explosion in so many things. That's a lot of it's diet and lifestyle related. And what people say, well, people won't change the way they eat. People won't change the way they live. Maybe they would if you actually stopped denying that that's the problem. Maybe they would if you stopped giving them a false solution that will never work. It's okay to eat 27 Twinkies a day as long as you take this statin and this other pill and this thing for your high blood pressure and this beta blocker and blah, 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 blah. And that would all be affordable if these dirty people over here would stop doing what they're doing and let you do what you need to do to get your affordable insurance. How many regulations have increased the cost of health care with no true gain to the person receiving the care? There's, I, again, I can't, because you see I'm multifaceted, but all of a sudden the solutions pour out. What about wealth inequity? We have wealth inequity. There's very poor people and very rich people. Is that the problem? Is that the real problem? Is somebody being wealthy a problem? Is somebody being wealthy a problem? If I have wealth, does it prevent you from having wealth? And just so that we can have this subject without you losing your mind today. We're just going to take people that have wealth at the level of a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos. We're not even going to discuss them. We're going to put them on the shelf in the back row and not worry about them for the, the sake of this discussion so that everybody can just calm the hell down. Because they will always use the extreme example on either side to further the split of the dichotomy. Always. They will always bring you the lowest of the low on one side and the highest of the high on the other to show you basically demented individuals, always. So we're going to just take the extreme examples of either and put them on the shelf for five minutes. We can do this for five minutes so that we might learn something by not being emotionally attached. Again, going back to being logical and rational and sane and trying to actually find a solution. So if I happen to own a nice house like I do, a nice car like I do, a nice computer like I do, and I'm able to pay all my bills, does that harm Anyone? Is there anybody that doesn't have enough to live well because of what I have? No. I'll answer that for you. The answer is no. And you'd be hard-pressed to make the case that anybody does. So, then the inequity in wealth isn't the problem. The actual problem is poverty. Poverty is the problem. How do we solve the problem of poverty? First thing we might do is redefine wealth. If we redefine wealth, we start to see lots of ways to reach out to people who are what we would refer to as impoverished. Instead of only using a monetary solution, we begin to address the needs that people have that aren't met when they're impoverished. So how can we make sure that poor people have better access to nutritional food. There's hundreds of ways to do that that don't involve a food bank, by the way. We can go back to feeding the world. We can teach people about the resources that are around them. One of the reasons we might have so much poverty is we have so many people living in such small areas who are all poor fighting over limited resources. So maybe teaching them that maybe getting out of some of those situations is a way to go. It's not that easy. None of this is easy. It's all simple. More on that later. But wealth, I'm not, I'm not saying any of these can be solved instantly. I'm saying that like a pathway toward improving the situation, when we actually define the problem as the actual problem, and again, usually it's problems, we immediately find a path. 
And we usually find something that a lot of people would agree with. How about, how do we solve the problem of the failing school system? Schools are failing, that's a problem. Is, is the failure of the school system the problem, or it is a symptom, that we have taken a wrong approach to education? So the problem is, we have not taken the right approach to educating people. See, they always want to say children. They always want to say children. Educating children. Because, see, think of the children. Like, it's immediately emotional. I'm sorry, when you're 19, 20, 21 years old, I may refer to you as a kid, because I'm an old man, but you're not a kid. You're old enough to vote. You're old enough to drive. In one more year, at the 20 to 21, you're old enough to drink. You're old enough to be drafted, served in the military. Right? You're old. You're an adult. And so the education issues do not stop in 12th grade. They continue into the university system, trade schools, etc. So instead of getting emotional, the problem is we have not taken the right approach to the education of people, which includes children. People include children, so you don't get all triggered. So as soon as we do that, we might say, how do we best educate people? And if you are a holistic thinking person, you would say the best way is to address the individual needs of the, of the student, to address the individual needs of the student. So immediately you realize that a centralized system is doomed to failure, and maybe that's why your school system is failing in the first place. And that you might actually look at that system and say, you know what, there's a segment of our population for whom this type of system works exceptionally well. We should make sure that this system is properly sized to the number of people whom it works well for and who wish to participate in it. Then we would have to actually do the hard work of finding the simple solutions to serving all the rest of the people that would also like to be educated. And we might realize that when we create a self-directed educational program for people, instead of screaming at the top of our lungs that that won't work for a lot of people, we say it's not supposed to. See, because we improperly define the problem. How do we find one way to teach everybody the same things we need them to learn? Well, it's impossible. But since we've now set that as a standard, every solution is judged against it, even though the solution in place fails miserably to do so. So if we created this self-directed path for students, that, I mean, even from a very young age, maybe from like 10, they're almost 100% completely in control of their own destiny with education. Okay, if that works for 10% of the people, good. That's a shitload of people. You can now be, you know, you're, they can be, you can be happy. They've got what they need. Now, you, you know what, they're, they're totally autonomous. You don't have to do anything for them. Every once in a while, check in and make sure they're heading kind of down the right. Okay, good. You know, it's like standing out the sidelines of a, of a soccer game and kicking the ball back in so no one has to come outside and throw the ball in with an out, out, out of bounds. It's, about like, it's like playing indoor soccer where there is no out of bounds unless it goes over the wall. Like the wall just kind of knocks the ball back in. Okay, great. Now let's worry. Okay, so we got maybe 30% of our people in a conventional system. We got 10% that's completely self-directed. Well, shit, that's 40% of people getting exactly. We only got 60% left to work on. And the smaller and smaller the unique needs of a group get, the more custom we might have to do, but it gets easier and easier because there's less and less people to address. Because we properly define the system, or properly define the problem. And therefore, the solutions become very, very clear. And here's what this pattern teaches us. 
Centralization is often the actual problem. As soon as we try to put everything in one basket of solution, we have this one problem and this one thing, and we need one thing that solves it all. As soon as we do that, we create division, and it won't work. So, decentralization is often a key fundamental component to the solution, at least some level of decentralization. Sometimes decentralization will need to be almost 100%. Sometimes decentralization will simply need to be, we need more ways to do this, so maybe instead of one way, there's ten. And that those ten ways will dramatically serve the majority of the population. And when I say majority, I'm talking 51%. If you do something that serves 51% of society, that's great if you're in a democracy, right, and you want to stay in power, and 51% of people are happy with it. We're not a democracy, we're a republic. Okay, you don't understand what a, dem a, a, a representative democracy in the form of a republic is, then. Sorry. It, the, the principle still holds true. If you can get the majority of people to be happy with your shitty solution, you can hold on to power for a time until they realize your solution's not working and then the other side gets power, which is fine because you guys are just passing a baton back and forth and everybody thinks you're in a freaking race and you're in a race against everybody else and y'all are just doing freaking relay. Right? Like, you think that, like, they're, they're handing the baton off to each other and they're just beating you up with it. So centralization is often the problem. So decentralization is often the solution. Division is almost always the goal of the elite. So unity. Find the solutions that the most people agree on and enact or demand those. And when I say the most, again, I'm not talking... Like, if you can get only a consensus of 50, 55, even 60% of people on a solution, it's probably a terrible solution. If you can present a solution, and you can do it eloquently enough to be detached from emotion, and it's a good solution, 80% or more of people should be like, that's worth doing. Even if I think we need to do other things too. Like, I'm on board with this. Let's take the problem of climate change. Well, the problem is we are damaging the environmental, uh, the environment of our planet. Whether it's causing the temperature to rise or fall, that immediately creates a division of opinion and a dichotomy. Okay, but when you say clearly cutting down all these forests is bad, most people are like, "You know what? You're right." So our solution to that, and to make our planet better, is to plant millions of trees. Almost everybody but a psychopath is like, yeah, I, 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 I can get behind planting some trees. Okay, And see, that's the point, that when you come up with a solution, it should be the opposite of what society's solutions are. When we talk about mainstream solutions, division is always the goal, so unity and consensus is always the goal if you actually want to solve a problem. Failure to focus on what we control never fixes anything. Failure to focus on that which we control never fixes anything. So, we need to focus on that which we control. So, if you think planting trees is the solution, you can work all you want for consensus on that and get as much of it as you can, and the more the better. But in the meantime, go plant an effing tree. If you think that teaching people to feed themselves is a solution... You can work to have all kinds of programs and groups and agencies and, you know, initiatives and whatever. And good. 
You can travel to the third world and do it yourself and whatever. Good. But the first place to start is your own backyard. If you're going to tell people that live in, in, in much smaller urban environments as far as how much space they have available, they can feed themselves, and you're not doing it in your backyard, what voice do you really have? What credibility do you really have? And that's just one example. We need to focus on what we control. Whatever we can take meaningful action for, for and go do it if we actually want the problem solved. Carrying a picket sign doesn't solve problems. Taking over the area of a city doesn't solve a problem. Throwing a brick through somebody's window or setting a building on fire certainly does not solve a problem. None of those things actually solve problems. But building solutions and saying, here's an example of one that works, that solves problems. Next, the solutions really are often quite simple. But simple does not mean easy. All this stuff is simple. You notice that Bill Mollison called it simple? Simple means that like figuring out what needs to happen and actually doing it is relatively simple. It can, it can be done. Getting it done at a broad scale, that's not easy. And a lot of times doing it isn't easy, at least it isn't easy until you start. Once you start, for you it gets easier every day. Think of it like exercise or diet. Like when you know you need to lose weight, you, need, you know you need to get in shape, the first day is the hardest day before you even do it. Actually saying Monday morning, 8 a.m., when I get up, I'm going to work out, this is my, my exercise routine, and I'm going to eat a good diet, this is my plan for the meals for Monday. That is the hardest thing to actually get up on Monday and do it. There's nothing hard about it in, in reality. There's nothing, like, nobody comes to your house and, like, says, oh, you think you're going to work out today? And, like, slaps the piss out of you and, and, and breaks your legs and says, no, you don't get to work out today. You have broken legs. Now get your ass back in the couch and eat this Twinkie, and they shove a Twinkie down your throat. Like, that doesn't happen. Then you would actually be able to make the case to me to do it is hard. It's not physically hard. It's difficult to take the step and commit to it. But what happens when you do it for a week? It gets easier. What happens when you do it for two weeks? At two weeks on a new diet, no matter how good of a diet it is for you, you're usually like, I miss fill in a blank. Whatever. And even, if you, even if you don't even eat it that often, the fact you can't have it, all of a sudden, oh my God, it's the forbidden fruit. But 30 days into it, it's just a way of life. It's just a habit. So many of these solutions work that way. For you to do the piece that you can do is actually not that difficult. But for you to commit to it and get going, it's difficult internally. And the more people that will make the switch, the bigger a movement can become. And we're talking about movements that actually fix problems here. And we have to stop thinking that our movement has to fix everybody's problem. If you do something and you encourage something and you teach something and you enact something and you do something and it fixes problems for a couple thousand people, you've done your part. I'm not saying stop, but I'm saying you've done your part. You've done your part for that problem. There's enough in motion that what you've started probably will never stop. And some of the people that you've moved will move others who will move others. Now you're playing their game of chess. See, once you start something that really works and you really get other people using it, now you're playing chess the way they do. Instead of moving the mob, though, you're moving the individual, and it's far more powerful. It's far more powerful because it's always individuals that break the mob by breaking from the mob. 
That's why the monkeys start flinging shit as soon as you try to break. They want to keep you in. But once you break away, a few of those monkeys like put the shit down and like, man, you know what? He's over there doing his thing. And I'm covered in shit. And he's not. Maybe I need to kind of sneak out the back of the monkey mob and go do what... And all of a sudden you have a movement growing. A decentralized organic movement to actually solve a real problem. So here's my final thoughts on how you know if you've accurately defined the problem. Okay, real solutions, key on plural, become obvious. As soon as you accurately define the problem, you will immediately begin to see solutions that can and will work. Additionally, you will often find the problem is more accurately problems. Again, emphasis on the S. That as soon as you define the problem, you're going to be like, okay, that is a real problem, and here are some solutions to it. And so as soon as they start finding these solutions, well, what about, you realize, okay, this problem is actually a series of problems. And each one of these, like, four sub-problems has four primary solutions. And it's very complex. Now, that will often lead to, you can put out a platform of some kind, if you are a leader in the space. But if you're going to be a doer, you're going to have to pick one or two. You'd have to pick like one problem and one or two solutions and run with it. And if you can get it rolling enough that other people are doing it, maybe you can grab another one. Many hands make light work, though. We don't need anybody to fix all these problems, and no one can. And we need to stop pretending that any one solution or any one individual or any one government or any one nation can fix all these problems. And start understanding that it's up to each of us to fix the piece we can, to actually do something. In general, said solutions, if you've defined the problem accurately, will have a broad consensus versus being divisive. It will be easy to get people to agree with your proposed solutions, especially if you don't do what I did today. Like what I did today was for educational purposes. The best way, if you want to take my approach to solving the problem that everybody calls white privilege, is to stop talking about white privilege Stop saying divisive things that even are true, like Black Lives Matter. Absolutely, Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. And saying Black Lives Matter does not mean that white lives don't matter. But you know what it does show, or what it does do? It divides people. Whether right or wrong, it divides people. And we've actually ruined the truth statement of all lives matter as well. Now that divides people too. So if we're going to be talking about that, since we're really talking about in both of those messages is police brutality, let's define the problem. There's a segment of law enforcement that is excessive in its use of force, including lethal force. Solve that problem. And talk about that problem. Don't make it a black issue. Don't make it a white issue. Don't make it a divisive issue. Even if you believe that it is. Push for solutions independent of emotion and emotional trigger buttons. Let go of it, even if you want to say it. Because it's not effective. It does not build consensus. Okay, If you present your solutions when you've accurately defined the problem and you leave the emotions out of it, you will find consensus almost immediate. We go back to something like environmentalism. The problem is we are dumping waste in the ocean. The solution is, let's stop dumping waste in the ocean. Only an idiot's like, oh, screw that, throw shit in the ocean, I don't care. Now you'll have a lot of people tell you, 
Well, we, we, we don't really do that. Okay, but here's a picture of basically an island of garbage floating around in the Pacific. We need to do something about this. And most people are like, shit, well, really? Yeah, okay. Now they're open. And you can start finding things that actually will keep refuse out of the ocean. Most people will agree to it. If you say, well, uh, taxing the air you breathe will fix this problem, they know it won't. And you know it won't either. Now you're trying to use this thing to get something else done. No. Stick to the problem and you will get broad consensus. The solutions will be largely decentralized and actionable. You'll be able to clearly define the solution and you'll be able to figure out some piece of it that you can do. And you will find that in some, because they're decentralized, there's some piece you can do. The more something centralized, the less control and power you have. See that? How that works? The more centralized something is, the less say an individual has. The more decentralized something is, the more say an individual has. So our solutions need to be decentralized, even if there are good central solutions. They have to be. Because we have to prove what we're saying with actionable results before we can ever even approach pushing it into a centralized system. We have to be able to say, look here, look here, look here, look here, and look here. And then maybe more people might get on board. If you want them to lead, if you want others to follow, first you must lead. Or in the words of our song, if you lead, the others will follow. And the solutions will run counter to both sides of the mainstream dichotomy. In other words, whatever you propose, when you accurately define a problem as a solution, will not really make either side happy. As long as they're in their emotional attachment to their side of the dichotomy, they will never listen to you. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that even though what you propose will be counter to the majority, the majority will agree with it? That's crazy, isn't it? Isn't that crazy? I'm going to propose something the majority of people will immediately reject. But if I propose it right, the majority of people who completely disagree with the proposed solutions now will agree with me. And I challenge you. You can do it with anything. Pick a problem. Pick a problem and, and define first how it is defined by the media and how is it defined by government and what are the two, two largest sides in it. What is the Identify the dichotomy. And is it Republican-Democrat? Okay, fine. That's a common one because in our society that's how almost anything political gets divided and almost everything that's big enough to do this is made political whether it is or not. Okay, as soon as you understand the divide, it will become so apparent to you the flaw in the definition of the problem that the, pro the real problems will come straight to the surface. You'll be able to write them down. And you'll be able to start writing down solutions to them. And they will be counter to, you'll like, neither side's proposing this. In fact, you'll, you'll actually find that like pieces of these solutions are inside their proposals, which are needlessly divisive. So clearly they don't want a solution. Present your solution. Use your solution. Demonstrate your solution. Right? I mean, it's, it, it really is that simple. And again, I want you to understand, simple doesn't mean all the problems go away. But quoting somebody else, Jeff Lawton this time, All the world's problems really can be solved in a garden. That statement is so much larger than it appears to be on the surface. 
so much larger. Because what it makes it sound like is if we just had a garden in everybody's backyard, all of our problems would magically go away like a, a, a unicorn fart over a rainbow. It's not what it means. It means that the very systems that we use to cultivate a garden, when applied to the cultivation of humanity, can be used to find solutions to every problem that we have. That's what it really means. I hope you'll share this show, and if not, maybe just the segment on, on the white privilege part, because it's a challenging one, but I think that I think it's hard to argue with the, the, the points that I put forward there. I'm sure somebody, I'm sure many people will. But anyway, if you're not being challenged by the places you get your information from, the places you get your information from are useless. They're worthless. I'm challenging myself on a daily basis. I hope you are as well. And I hope that I never stop challenging you guys. Because I've always said that like trying to be a teacher, an educator, and an entertainer, if I'm not challenging you, I'm not doing my job. And, and that has me to take a, kind of a backseat as a teacher and understand a couple of things about being a teacher. You know the old saying, when, when, when the student is ready, the teacher appears? That does not elevate the teacher. It humbles the teacher. That humbles the teacher. Because what it means is I have to accept the fact that a lot of people are not ready to hear what I have to say. But here's the, here's the even more humbling piece of that. Many of your students will eventually get to a point where you can no longer help them. You do not challenge them sufficiently. So the only way to stay at the top of your game as a teacher is not to be distressed when that happens. Be glad that you were part of that student's elevation in knowledge and then always challenge yourself so you can always do a little bit more to challenge the people that you teach a little bit more. And boy, you want to talk about a solution to the education problem. What if we just started teaching from that philosophy? That it was important that we find the right teacher for the right student to sufficiently challenge the student to the point where the student can rise above the ability of that teacher to challenge them. You think that's an insurmountable thing to do. I'm going to tell you it's a dramatically simple thing to do. It's simply not easy because it requires us to acknowledge the individual rather than try to create a one-size-fits-all solution for a collective that's not even really a collective. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please consider doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you'll help support the show and the work that we do no matter what you buy. I've got a great one for you today. This is one of those items I really think anybody with a small property that has a property big enough that you occasionally need to drop a tree or trim a tree or cut up a little bit of firewood or something like that, that you should have. The Oregon Self-Sharpening Electric Chainsaws. There's a rechargeable one that uses batteries, cord-free. I love it, but it's not as powerful as the one that plugs in. Plug in one, though you got a cord. There's a reason people, you know, literally nobody has a phone on the wall anymore with a cord on it. Because people like a, you know, a cell phone, wireless phone, data phone, right? Because you can go anywhere with it. So it doesn't have that, but... You know, on a small holding, most people with one good extension cord can get just about anywhere on their property with power. And, man, this thing's on sale for $96. Now, a Pullin Pro, which is a gas-powered saw that doesn't sharpen itself, will run about $120 to $150, and it is basically garbage. I've, I've owned that saw. It's better than nothing, but it does not. I don't care how good you take care of them. They do not last and maintain themselves well over time. I've owned the Oregon saws now, both of them, for over five years. I work them harder than you probably will, and they both still work exceptionally well. 96 bucks for the plug-in one is stupid cheap, 
And the way they self-sharpen is they have a little lever. You pull the lever, you run the saw, sparks fly out. You only do it for a couple seconds. The chain is back to razor sharp. Number one reason people are not happy with their saws, because the chain's not sharp. Number two reason, chain gets loose. Loose chains do not cut well. So then you got to take the tool, and you turn the screw, and you tighten back down the bar. And if you don't know how to do that, don't worry. With the electric chainsaws from, from Oregon, you don't have to. You turn one knob one way, you turn the other knob another way, you test the tension of the chain, you tighten the first knob back down, you're done. Toolless chain tensioning. You get this saw, you get a couple of the replacement chains, because they do wear out over time, and a couple quarts of bar and chain oil to maintain your saw. And you're probably good for the average homeowner, you're probably good for three or four years before you need any other supplies. 96 bucks. this belongs in the hands of most homeowners, with a caveat. Chainsaws are dangerous and you can get hurt. Please know what you're doing or get instruction from someone that does before you use any chainsaw. Some of the nastiest injuries I've ever seen came from chainsaws. That said, these saws are safer than most gas saws as well. For more, read my write-up today. You can find it at tspaz.com or you can find it at thesurvivalpodcast.com and just start scrolling to uh, the post directly under today's episode. And remember, you can always stay in touch with all the cool stuff I do, including behind-the-scenes stuff that you won't get anywhere else on the Daily Mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Daily Mail, fill out one form, you'll get an email every day with a few bullet points in it and some links. That's all it will ever be. All right, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with our song of the day. So our song of the day is by Molly Tuttle, and it's called Good Enough. And this is a really kind of happy, carefree-sounding, uh, kind of bluesy, bluegrass song, which is kind of what Molly Tuttle is known for. Um, and again, it's called Good Enough. And... It's probably nice to have a song kind of this cheerful sounding at the end of a show where we went into deep problems like this. But I also think it's kind of a good message that, that fits with this show. Well, what she's talking about with Good Enough is really about realizing that your life's pretty good and you have someone in your life that matters to you and that being good enough. Um, I also kind of talked about things being enough today, like having done your part. And I think that one of the things that holds us back from helping the world with real solutions is that we we look at insurmountable problems and we judge what we can do based on whether or not they completely and totally rectify an insurmountable problem that's been with humanity since the beginning of humanity. Well, to be blunt, you're not that good. You're not that important. Neither am I. No one is. What we all need to do is figure out what is good enough. What is it that we can do that will matter to some people that's good enough that we've made the effort that we should make as people that share this planet. What is good enough for you? What is good enough for you? And challenge yourself to push it a little bit further every day, just a little bit. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Couldn't sleep last night Too many demons floating around my head but with morning light Pushed away my dread And there comes a time to say that's good enough I'm finally learning how to let some doors stay shut It gets so hard but I'm not giving up Comes a time to say that's good enough I've got to let this go This doubt inside me The the road I take These things I'll never Stay shut. It gets so hard, but I'm not giving up. Come.
Stay shut. It gets so hard, but 